go ahead and uh, write down a few things you remember from yesterday and talk about that to your friend. Okay, let's go ahead and come back together. Let's go ahead and come back together, guys. And uh, I'd love to hear someone from each group uh, tell Yusikor all the all the wonderful things he mentioned or that we uh, we talked about yesterday that he that he missed. Who would like to go first? In our group, uh, we discussed about uh, first we seen about uh, we started from first person in chapter one, uh, and we tried to draw uh, bring out some uh, principles of uh, preaching from the first person in and then we talked about uh, Aristotelian uh, uh, way of uh, you know preaching. Good, good. What else? More controversial that we probably still need to discuss, but that sanctification is monergistic, not synergistic, <laughs> all of God. Um, that, and we weren't meaning like by that, that it's just let go and let God, like you don't have to have any effort where your sanctification is passive, but that we must depend on the work of God, the power of the gospel through the Spirit to grow in holiness, the heart change. And it's good, fun. yes. And so it's, we, we said on that that our, our obedience doesn't sanctify us. Our obedience is a result of God's sanctifying work. So, so our work in sanctification is to expose ourselves to the gospel, which is the only thing that can sanctify us. So yeah, very well, well said, James. It doesn't mean let go and let God. It doesn't mean that we don't do things to <clears throat> strive for holiness, but it does mean that the way we strive for holiness is gospel-centered. It's not lost. We don't, we don't become more holy by the law. We become more holy by the gospel. or more like Christ by the gospel. So, well, well, well said, James. Go ahead. I cut you off. What else were you going to say? A.B. was mm. Only the gospel can sanctify us. By sanctifying, meaning uh, makes us willing to obey and also uh, makes us obey according to Philippians 2.12 that we, we saw. Yes. Good. And Excellent. That, uh, there are ways to get law and gospel confused. Uh, 
labor. The second one is to minimize the severity of the law uh, or the glories of grace. Uh, there is uh, thinking that God desires obedience more than he desires brokenness or contrite spirit. Uh, and that this gets into the idea of like more majestic and majestic again, but like, yeah. I'm done. Good. Anything else that Yesukor missed yesterday? You guys have covered it well. We talked about the uniqueness of the preached word. Uh, how in preaching, God is uniquely speaking to his people. Good. Yeah. God, God uses the preaching moment to reveal. Right? Not that our words are special revelation, but that God uniquely uses the preaching moments to convict, to encourage, to do all kinds of things in the church, the church corporate collective. He, he can do those things in small groups and one-on-one -on -one conversations. Sure, he chooses to reveal in those moments also, but in the, when the entire church is gathered, he uses the, especially the preaching moment to reveal to us our sin, to reveal to us the gospel, to reveal to us the glories of his grace. That elevates preaching. Um, good. And then one, one other thing we nuanced. We talked about the difference between preaching a Christ-centered hermeneutic and preaching Christ, right? Can someone help Yusakor understand what, what we mean by that? Well said, Mikey. Yeah, so what we're not saying is that we don't need doctrine. What we're not saying is that we don't need the gospel. But what we are saying is that we want to, uh, we want to follow the model of Jesus in Luke 24, and that he, open, he both opens their minds to understand Christ in the Old Testament, but then later they say our hearts were burning within us. Um, so we want to preach Christ in a way that's what we're not doing is trying to make Christ, this is a Sinclair Ferguson quote, the, the answer to a, a puzzle or a riddle. Like if the Old Testament is a riddle, Christ is the answer to that. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to model a redemptive historical hermeneutic. We're not trying to um, make people fall in love with a redemptive historical hermeneutic. We're trying to make people fall in love with Jesus Christ as a person. So that means once we've shown people how to get to Christ from the text and how the gospel is in the text, that's, that's, just, when our, that's when just when preaching's begun. <laughs> Like we, had, we still haven't preached Christ. From there, we can explore the glories of the person who is Jesus Christ uh, and how that person and how that affects us both in our minds and in our affections. So we preach to both.
Good. Any anything else or any questions from yesterday before we move on to new stuff today? I have a question. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering, um, is there like a reformed in the reformed tradition? Is there a consensus on how to interpret Hebrews twelve fourteen? Uh, there's not. No. In fact, um, maybe five years ago. Maybe six years ago. It would have been six years ago, I think. Um, Kevin DeYoung preached a sermon at, together for the gospel uh, where he asked the question, can we be glorified without being sanctified? And what he meant by that was um, without works of righteousness, will we be glorified? That's what he meant. Without works of righteousness, will we be glorified? And he preached that from Hebrews 12, 14. And his answer was no. He said that, that Hebrews, uh, what he said was that justification is by faith alone, but glorification um, is a result of um, is a result of, of works, was what he was saying. Um, so I, uh, and that's that's very simple um, summary of what he was saying, but I think I guess the essence of it that. Hebrews 12, 14, he believes, says that unless we produce holy acts in our lives, we will not be glorified. Now, he would say that the great comfort is that every person who is justified will be sanctified, right? Um, but that our glorification is dependent upon acts of righteousness, which I, I understand the pastoral impulse there, but I don't think that's what Hebrews 12, 14 is saying. And I, I think that, I think what people he, end up hearing from that is, I, I think the result of that is people end up not, not doing what Hebrews 12, 2 says, which is that we put aside every weight and sin that besets us by looking to Christ. It, it ends up becoming much more self-focused instead of Christ-focused. Um, but, it, but this, this difference does run throughout Reformed church history as well. Um, yeah. But especially in Lutheran circles, um, especially, especially Luther would have understood. I, I, what, I'm, what I'm presenting is more of a, a, a Lutheran understanding of holiness and sanctification, though um, Calvin says some things very similar to what I'm saying as well. Go ahead. What were you gonna say? Yeah, I was just because uh, I think I remember reading J.C. Ryle's book a while ago. Okay, some years back. I can't remember his whole argument, but I think he was presenting the holiness there as more like you know our present sanctification. Um, yeah. I think also Piper, some, I think he also uses that way. Yeah, so, yeah, so, and Piper has an interesting view of justification also. So, I believe, if I remember correctly, Piper's view of justification is that um, the, it's an end times verdict that will be based upon the life lived. So, it's where we are just, we, we experience positional justification now by faith, but on the last day, God is going to look to our works, um, which verify our faith, and that's what will justify us. I think that's Piper's view of justification. 
which, of course, anyone who obeys is going to, or anyone who is saved is going to have works of obedience, right? Um, but oh, one, th- one text that's really interesting, where is it? Galatians. Yeah, Galatians. So is Galatians a future, or sorry, (laughs) is justification an eschatological event or is it a a present reality? It's both, right? Justification is an end times verdict that we feel the, we feel and experience the declaration now, but justification has to do with the end, the final judgment. We'll talk more about this in our, our eschatology class. But um, do you see in verse 17 here, Paul says, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ. So are they justified or are they seeking? Are they endeavoring? That's the word is seeking to be justified in Christ. That's an end times. In some sense, Paul is saying like the, the, the final judgment is in mind. They're seeking to be justified in Christ on the last day. But Paul just said in the previous verse, in order, um, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. I think that if you have that eschatological view of justification, in verse 17, then we have to say that that end times verdict is not based upon the life lived, but it's based upon our faith in Christ. Um, so again, this is, what justification is, is, is even debated within reform circles, but what it means to believe in justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, but I think that if you, once you start beginning, once you start seeing texts like Hebrews 12, 14 is talking about our acts of holiness, um, then that, that eventually leads to those kinds of conclusions about what justification is on the last day. Is it, is it based on our works or based solely on faith in Christ? It's not an easy, it's not an easy topic for them. But, but I will say this, who among us has holiness that is strong enough that we will see the Lord? If that's what he says we should strive for, none of us is ever going to get there. So it, I, think, I think that the effect of that text is you can, either you can read it as law that points us to Christ, and then once we run to Christ, we actually possess the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or it's what he says in Hebrews 2, verse 1, to pay closer attention to the gospel unless we stray from it. I think that's, that's like one, if you want to understand what Hebrews is about, Hebrews 12, 1, I think is one of the main theme verses 
we, we pay t closer attention to the gospel most we stray from it. But I think that Hebrews 12, 14 gives opportunity to pay closer attention to the gospel lest we stray from it. It's not easy, though. To Go ahead. that, I was thinking of 1 John 3. When he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then it says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Yep. Like, there's this hope. When we're in heaven and seeing the Lord, we're actually going to be holy. We're not going to be mm -hmm. like, man, I just don't belong in heaven because I have all these thoughts. Like, it seems like he's saying everyone who sees the Lord will be holy, and we should strive for that, though. As we learned yesterday, we're completely desperate for the Lord to, uh, to do it. So for me, it seems like a lot of hope, like not as much law. Like I'm striving after it, but it's, that holiness is also promised to me because I know I'll see the Lord and I know he's working in me. It, yeah, and then even if you look at the end of First John two, um, how do we how do we experience the purification? How does the purification come in First John two? It comes through the hope of the return of Christ. I, I think it comes through the gospel, is what he's saying. But it's a certain element of the gospel. It comes through meditating on the fact that Jesus is going to return. And that ends up sanctifying us. So again, it's holiness by proximity. It's beholding the glory of God in the faith of Jesus Christ so that we're changed from one degree of glory to another. It's what Paul says in the end of Galatians 2, the, faith, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Or Hebrews 12, 2. Um, we put off sin and weights by looking to Jesus. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're right, James. And just to, I think it's another text which, which talks about sanctification by looking at the gospel. Uh, sanctification by gospel and not sanctification by obedience. Although it is interesting, it says again, everyone who practices righteousness. There, it seems like the reason this idea is hard is they're interacting and exchanging constantly about practicing and looking. And uh -huh. In our mind it's hard, but in our lives it seems pretty simple. Yeah, but I think I think even there, you know, what what I'm saying what I'm saying is not that there's not going to be fruit. Like I I think that yes, I, I fully affirm what first John two twenty nine says. If you practice righteousness, then you've been born of him. There's going to be fruit. But the way that fruit comes, the way that practicing righteousness comes is by meditating on the gospel and not by meditating on the law. Again, it's, if, there, if sin is something, if, if we need a poison that kills sin, right? The only poison that can kill it is the gospel. It's not law. And it's, it's not even our obedience. Our obedience doesn't kill sin. The gospel kills sin. Our obedience is response. We obey in response to the sin that's been killed, in, res, in response to the sin-killing power of the gospel. So, that, I mean, when, when you're facing a moment of temptation... Right? The, the, the best way to resist it is not by thinking, God says don't do this. I mean, that's what Romans 7 is all about. The best way to combat it is saying Jesus Christ never did this. And Jesus Christ has died for sins like this. How can I betray my Lord? When you're, when you're tempted to, um, what, whatever, you know, um, Christ has never treated me this way. 
Christ has been faithful to me. He has not abandoned me. And that, that, that is how you kill sin in the moment of temptation. This is by meditating on the gospel in Christ. And then all of a sudden you find within yourself, I don't want to do it. it, it that, the gospel is the only thing that has the power to change us at the affections level and cause us to live, to live accordingly. So I'm not talking about not obeying. I'm talking about the only way, the, I'm saying the only way to obedience is the gospel. And that radically shapes the way we preach. Because what people need to hear is the gospel. And when we get to our section on sanctification, um, we're, we're going to apply what we talked about in hermeneutics with faith, hope, and love, right? Oftentimes, love is the only one of those three that's preached in application. But I think um, 1 John 2.28, for instance, is a great proof text for saying that faith and hope is application as well. Preaching Christ and preaching the gospel is application. If we don't do that, then we're not, we're not preaching the only thing that can actually affect people so that they walk in, in love and walk in holiness. Josh, can mm -hmm. you say um, maybe in these texts where you know seeking after righteousness is incited, um, we're, we, we're saying that uh, we're letting the Holy Spirit do the sanctification in us and seeking righteousness we're going into the going back to the gospel and letting the Holy Spirit do the sanctification in us because that could that be a good uh, understanding of that yeah I, I absolutely think so yeah that's exactly right and then as we do we find Philippians 2:12 God has worked we find our Philippians 2:13. Oh my goodness, God has worked in me to will and to do for his good pleasure. And then you, you desire and you do. Um, but only, only the Holy Spirit can do that. We cannot do that. Josh, I have a question. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about sin. After, like, we know that the will of God for us is to be holy, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And how, what's, like, how do we see uh, uh, sin in our life? Like, uh, when we do sin, who is the one who blame? Because if we say God is the one who sanctifies us, so try to explain. Yeah, um, there's, there's never any text in the Bible that places the responsibility for our sin on God. Right, or we could say it like this, why do people, we're, we're Calvinists, right? Why do people go to hell? Why do people go to hell? Do people go to hell because of God? Is God at fault for people going to hell? No, people go to hell because they don't want God. People go to hell because they have a, a heart that hates God, right? So then, why do we sin? Do we sin because, well, God hasn't, you know, this is God's fault. God could, God could change me in this moment if he wanted to. So it's God's fault that I, that I sinned. No. In the same way that, that people go to hell because they, they, want, they don't want Jesus, right? We sin because we don't want Jesus. And God's not responsible for that. We are, we are fully responsible for all consistent with our affections. 
Um, so in the same way, when Jesus says to the, the man whose daughter is sick, um, that, that uh, if you believe, she'll be well, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. We, we, okay, I, to, to finish it, I was just saying that um, the only power for growth and holiness is the gospel. Right, so, so when we disobey or when we're tempted, we run as fast as we can to the gospel. And that's the only place where we can find hope. When, when we try to find hope in ourselves, or when we try to find hope in law, we, we end up like the Roman seven man who says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But the, but the gospel, the gospel produces hope instead of dread. So I'm not saying don't strive for holiness, but I am saying strive for holiness in a way that's actually, that actually works. Strive for holiness in a way that works and fight sin with the only thing that has the power to fight sin and kill sin, which is the gospel. Thank you, George. Yeah, for sure. It's a good question. It's a balance that we always have to work to have, right? It's a balance that we always have to work to have. Good, any other questions or ideas? Okay, um, we still have a few minutes left in this first hour. Uh, I do think just um, taking time to look at a specific passage about preaching in the morning and then making those observations about preaching, there's a cumulative effect of just looking at a text and meditating on it and making conclusions about preaching. So I do wanna do that this morning, uh, but we don't have as much time. So look with me at 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. Read 2 Timothy chapter 2 with the person next to you. Um, actually, if someone would volunteer to read 2 Timothy 2 out loud to the group and then try to try to write down five different observations or takeaways about preaching from, from 2 Timothy 2. The whole chapter? And then we'll go ahead and take our first break after our discussion. Yep, the whole chapter. Okay. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuit, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking former who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will not give you understanding, will give you understanding in everything. Remember, Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bond with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God 
not to quarrel about words which do, does not good, but only ruin the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irrelevant babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philippus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who, name, whose, who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood, clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passion and pursue righteous faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Having nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Good. So let's, let's take maybe five to seven minutes, write down five observations. And we'll come back together and hear from uh, from your different groups. Okay, so uh, love to hear from you guys. What are some What are some principles for preaching uh, from this text? Yeah, so apply that specifically to preaching. How does that affect the way we preach? So we preach in a, in a, in a way that um, we, we don't really know who are gods and who are elected, who are um, chosen, but we try to see the fruit uh, in their life, and we, we, we point out to people that they ought to live in a way that um, the same way we see in the beginning of the chapter, they ought to run the race in order to win. They ought to work uh, with, with no short, shortcuts, keeping the main team the main, suffering for Christ, and all that. So in that is how we know that um, God is working in them. Good. Excellent. And what else? Chapter 2, verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since he aims to please the one who enlisted him. Then 5. 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. I found that we found that interesting because, uh, like Av said right now, it's like keeping the main thing the main thing, and about not taking shortcuts, like basically saying, okay, what you have been entrusted with is the gospel, and you keep on giving people the gospel and nothing else. You, it might seem like it's a shortcut. You might need to use a shortcut right here and there. You don't see fruit, but what the thing is, you will be crowned if you just keep on feeding the gospel to people. Just look by the books, do what you're told, and what we've been given, and what, what we've been given is the gospel. So keep faithful to the gospel and preach the gospel. Excellent. Good, what else? And we talked about striving to raise up faithful men who can train other men. So not just doing everything ourselves, but seeking to equip others. Excellent, good. Good. Yeah. Excellent. But the other thing is persistence. Uh, uh, suffering. Uh, that because the the word, oh, the word of God and the gospel is uh, has a firm ground. So that uh, future should have to be persistent. Persistent. And the other thing we've seen is that we, uh, a preacher should uh, do his best to present himself. Uh, because uh, to, to be used as a honorable vessel and also not to be hard towards, uh, like towards the false teachers. Uh, he was the Paul was giving him uh, instruction to be more patient and uh, gentle uh, towards uh, this uh, the Corinth guys and others were around them that they he may uh, like he may give them the ability to escape from the snares of the devil and this was that I think we marvel from because. We even are quarrelsome with one another, with brothers, not just with those who are fosters, but he, he was instructed to be more of uh, patient and in doing evil and uh, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Good. Also, uh, in verse 8, it says, Remember Jesus Christ. Uh, we have to remember that the gospel is 
about the person uh, and the work of Jesus Christ, who is raised from the dead. So he, he advised uh, Timothy to remember about Jesus Christ. He said, this is my gospel. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible is 1 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ. I love that verse. Good, maybe one more. We talked about having courage and expecting suffering as we seek to please God. Good. So one thing Excellent. In verse mm -hmm. 25, uh, our motive for to uh, for rebuking the false justice uh, so that God may grant them repentance. It's not just for the sake of uh, rebuking them. And we should do that in, in gentleness. Yes. Good work, guys. That's excellent. What, what we want to do now, we, we've spent an entire week <clears throat> talking about a theology of preaching, theology of the word, right? Um, what it is we're doing. And, and now, now we begin to transition to the practicals of how to prepare a sermon. Uh, and this lesson kind of stands as that transition lesson. Um, because what, what we're going to do in this lesson is to say, if, if everything we've said this week is true, right? If everything we've said about preaching this week is true, then what does faithful preaching look like? What does faithful preaching look like? Because um, we, we want our preaching to be consistent with our, the theological conclusion we've drawn so far. We want to have preaching that models the theological conclusions we've already drawn. Um, and again, this, this, this lesson is uh, heavily pulled from a lot of Jeff Perswell's work, again, to give credit where credit's due. Now, now, what we've consistently been saying is that preaching is a proclamation of the gospel. It's a proclamation of God's word, bringing the gospel to bear on people's lives. And so I think what we want to do is find a way to keep our sermons grounded in Scripture. I want to find a way to keep our sermons grounded in Scripture. I want to ask what's the best way to do that. But we've seen that there needs to be a connection between the Word of God and preaching, right? Um, but it's, e it's easy to deviate from God's Word when we're preaching. It's easy to leave God's Word and start preaching our own ideas, our own philosophies, our, <clears throat> our own hobby horses and bandwagons. So how can we be sure that our preaching is always grounded in scripture. What methodology can we use for that? Um, so any, any, no, what I'm not, what I'm not saying is that there are, um, there are, there are true sermons that don't pull from scripture or don't find their authority in scripture or don't ultimately rest in scripture, but there are models of preaching that are more rooted in scripture. There are models of preaching that are more closely connected to scripture. So any, any true sermon uses scripture, but we need to be discerning. We need to be careful about how our sermons use scripture. It's not enough that we use scripture. It's not enough that we quote the Bible. We must be discerning in how our sermons 
quote the Bible. So I want to give us three, three types of sermons. And we can even say three types of biblical sermons. Right? And what I mean by biblical sermons is a sermon that's rooted in the text. <clears throat> so all three of these draw from Scripture, but in different ways. Right? So all three come from Scripture, but in different ways. It's not enough that our sermons just simply come from Scripture. We want to be careful with the way that Scripture is incorporated into the sermon and that the sermon is birthed out of the Scriptures. Okay? And you'll, you'll understand more of what we mean by that as we, as we continue here. So type one is a topical sermon. A topical sermon. So, at best, topic sermon. A topical sermon is biblical in its subject matter. It's not. It's not unbiblical. Topical sermons are not unbiblical. <clears throat> they are biblical in their subject matter, and they they draw from a variety of scriptures. So usually, usually, like if there's an outline for a topical sermon, it would probably look something like this. Main point one might come from, you know, James 5, verse 8. Main point 2 might come from 1 John 3, 12. And main point 3 might come from Matthew 8, verse 9. Okay, I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what a couple of those verses say, but I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that that is a sermon or that those verses all go together. I'm, I'm saying that that's what they tend to do, is, is each main point of the sermon tends to come from a different text of Scripture. So you're, you're drawing from a wide range of scripture texts. So it, it is biblical, right? It's biblical because it's grounded in scripture. Um, but the, the danger, is, so I'll ask this question. If, if it is grounded in scripture, right, what's the danger? Is there a danger? Is there a problem with this? Okay, what's the, what, what's, the, what's the potential danger? Uh, there may be a potential that the members may not uh, hear all the whole uh, counts of God because the preacher picks different verses and he speaks on topics. So You're talking about context? Is that what you say? They might not get the context of the text? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so that's one potential danger is that, <clears throat> is that uh, you might not give the full context or explain the full context. Now, now, I do think that you can do topical sermons that explain the context. Okay, Just because it's topical doesn't mean that you're not explaining the context. And there are places for topical sermons also. I think there are times when topical sermons are just fine. Uh, and you can explain the context. And, and when you do a topical sermon, you should make sure that you explain the text in its context. The first thing you do when you get to each main point is you explain the entire context of the text. So at, its, at, at worst, it can distort God's word, though, is what Yabzika is saying. If you're not understanding the context, if you're just using these proof texts without truly studying what the text means, it can distort God's word. Okay. Um, but more, go ahead. Uh, preachers always, most of the time, preacher, preachers have this preference, uh, preference in uh, topics, uh, 
want to preach. Yeah. So if we preach political sermon, if the main guide of uh, the church is political sermon, then people might not give the whole counsel of God, but the preacher's preference. It's exactly, yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's definitely a danger is that our own theological preferences, our own emphasis, the way we apply Scripture becomes kind of the theme of every single sermon. Um, but going back to the idea of context, it, we can, at worst, distort. Distort God's Word, right? But I think more common, no, no one really wants to distort God's word. So there are times like Philippians 3 or 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which doesn't mean you can win the basketball championship. You can win the football championship through Christ who strengthens you, right? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you can run the fastest marathon that's ever been run because Christ strengthens you, obviously, right? But it's, so there are times it's applied that way. That's a distortion of God's word. But more easily, it, it can subvert God's word. Or subvert uh, the word's intent. And therefore, the word's power. So an example of that, look at, look at Isaiah 55, 8. If you have your Bible, turn there. You know this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So if you if you hear this this text referenced, how is how is it typically referenced? How, how is it typically dealt with? What do people say about this, or what do they use this text to prove? The transcendence of God. That's yeah, that's exactly right. The transcendence of God. That's exactly right. God is different than us, which is true, but I think there's more going on in this text than that. And I think, I think that it's not a distortion. It's not a distortion, but it does subvert the actual intent of what the text is saying. So look at this text with you, the people in your group. Understand the context and ask, what, what is this saying in context? Talk about that in your group, Isaiah 55. And especially look at what's come before it. Okay, so <clears throat> what's Isaiah saying about God? Why does he say God's thoughts are not our thoughts in the context of, of the scripture? I think God is saying he's not, uh, he doesn't hold a grudge like we do. Well, that's right. Have compassion if the that's exactly, yeah. That's the, the point of the text is you can come to God in repentance because he doesn't hold grudges. That's what it's saying. Now, now, is it wrong for systematic theologies to use this to prove God's transcendence? No. Because we, we can say maybe by implication, you know, God is different than us, and so therefore he's transcendent. However, that's exactly what it's saying. You can always come to God with with re repentant heart asking for forgiveness you can always come to god through christ in the gospel and he will abundantly pardon you for your sins because he doesn't hold grudges now can you can you preach a topical sermon you know, about forgiveness 
and mention this text as one of your main points and deal with it in the correct way. Yes, you most certainly can, but the danger is in topical sermons, you don't have as much time to deal with each text specifically and individually in your study. And so you end up making mistakes like that. And the, the real power of this text is like Israel in exile, we oftentimes find ourselves overwhelmed by our own sins. And we're not sure if God will take us back. Well, God says, Isaiah 55, 1, come to me. I will give you everything you need. And if you are wondering, does God actually mean it? Yes, he does. And how do we know he means it? Because he's not like us. He's not like us. He will always pardon us for our sins. You see, if you, if you misunderstand what that text is saying, again, you don't, it's not a distortion, but it does subvert the text of its actual power because we don't understand it in its redemptive context. So we don't understand what Isaiah is actually saying. Um, so it's easy. It's a kind of sermon then it's, it's easy to mess up like that. But then like, like Yisko was saying, it's easy for our own emphasis, our own ideas to become the main idea of every single sermon. Josh, uh, also, yes. It also doesn't account uh, most of the time the historical background of uh, the text. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. Most of the time, topical sermons don't do that. Now, here, here's what I want to be careful of. Does that mean that every topical sermon does that? No, it doesn't. <clears throat> there, there are ways to faithfully do topical sermons, but you have to do a lot of hard work. <laughs> like you have to do a lot of hard work and a lot of hard study. Topical sermons are, are perhaps the hardest sermon to prepare because you have to do in-depth study on every text you're referencing in order to make sure you don't do things like this. Now, but, but I don't think, because you can do this faithfully, I don't think that that's the biggest danger of topical sermons. Okay? I don't think that's the biggest danger of topical sermons. I think, I think the biggest danger, because you can prevent these two. You can. The biggest danger um, is that the arrangement of the sermon is ours. The arrangement of the sermon is ours. <clears throat> we decide what texts speak, in what order they speak, the ideas of the sermon, how it progresses, versus letting the text tell us how the sermon should progress, okay? So here, here's a, a quote from Packer on this very topic, or on this very idea. In my view, topical sermons, topical discourses of this kind, no matter how biblical their component parts, right? So you can have component parts, you have biblical components, you have biblical main points. They cannot but fall short of being preaching in the full sense of the word just because their biblical content is made to appear as part of the speaker's own wisdom. 
The authority of God revealed is thus revolved into that of the religious expertise. We're we're the ones who arrange the material. And that's the most dangerous part of topical sermons. Um, So so are there there times for topical sermons? Absolutely there are. Are there times for topical series? Absolutely they are. I think think Michael's sermon series that he he began that unfortunately we have to delay on, on the Holy Spirit is very helpful in addressing theological issues or current event issues or even just topics of relevance to the church. Um, there are times for that, um, but the cautions are we must exegete each text properly in their context, in their historical context. That's very difficult. It takes a lot more time. And I think that if we do it, if we do topical sermons, we, we must we must be careful. We must be careful that the arrangement of the text we choose and the trajectory of the sermon is redemptive in nature. So we must... Okay. We must make sure it's redemptive in nature. So this is where our gospel centrality comes in. This is where our law-gospel distinction comes in. This is where our Christ-centered hermeneutic comes in. We, we must make sure that the trajectory that the Bible gives us uh, is the trajectory of the sermon. Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Yeah, Ibi. Uh, so, from what we tried to do from Isaiah 55 and understanding it, you said it could be right to preach the de- transcendence of God. Uh, so that would mean it's not the author's intent to convey the transcendence of God. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite. But still, the that the the part that we just uh, pulled, the fact that uh, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's way uh, different than and you know uh, uh, and His ways higher than ours. That that phrase and that that chunk of the message conveys the transcendence. So, um, how do we how do we? Because I think some, I heard someone say extremely uh, apart from the intent of the original author, you know, the word of God cannot be used. And I don't totally like agree with it in regards to what we just did. I think this, but as long as it's informed from the you know. The biblical theology and uh, other major doctrines. What, what's your yeah? Point? Yeah. So, so I do think I do think that Isaiah is teaching the transcendence of God, but he's teaching it. He's teaching it within a very specific context. He's saying God is not like us in in a specific way. Like James said, he's, God is not like us in that he doesn't hold grudges. So there's a difference between saying. God is not like us, and God is not like us in that he does not hold grudges. So I do think we should, we should teach the intent of the text. I do think we should teach the intent of the text, the author's intent of the text. And we, we talked a lot about this in hermeneutics, that I want to nuance that. There's all kinds of nuances, and we spent an entire class almost talking about the nuances of what do we mean by authorial intent, right? Um, but I think 
what my fear is not that we will say the opposite of what the author meant, but that we won't be precise enough. And if all we take from this text is the transcendence of God, then without its without what the author means in context, then we're not we're not distorting. Okay, so distorting would be to say the opposite, right? But we're subverting. So close, but no cheesecake, right? Close, but no cheesecake, <laughs> right? We're, we're close enough for it to sound right, but we're not precise. So to be more precise, close, but not precise. Now that's, that's my main concern is that we're close, but not precise. And again, that's not, that does not mean we, sh this is not a reason to not do topical sermons, but it is a reason to be cautious in doing them. The real, the real danger in topical sermons is what Packer says. The arrangement of the sermon is ours and not God's. It's a good question, Amy. Now we can arrange, if, if we do topical sermons, my encouragement is arrange it in a law gospel way in a way that leads to Christ. Because we, we get that trajectory from Scripture itself. If we mimic the trajectory that Scripture gives us, then we won't go wrong in the trajectory of our sermons. But again, it shouldn't, I, I don't think that this is the most faithful way. This is, this is a biblical sermon, right? Because it's deriving its main points from the text. But it's not the most biblically faithful option. Any other questions on that? Okay, next is what's called a text topical sermon. Okay, so it's different than a topical sermon. So we just covered topical sermons. Secondly, we have text topical sermons. Okay, so this, unlike, unlike a topical sermon where each, each main point is going to come from a different text, a text topical sermon has one text. It's, and it's usually a shorter text. And that, that text suggests a topic. And the preacher then builds kind of a theology from that topic that the text suggests. It, it builds a foundation from the single text. And then it uses other texts to kind of build uh, a sermon uh, and so fill out the topic even more. So uh, usually, and usually it's from a, a very short passage that needs further text to explain it. Or it can be a very short text that you kind of just go into application mode. And maybe, maybe it's a, a very short text that you apply each word individually. Um, so it, it, it relies in a lot on apologetics, a lot on theology, an application for content because it's going to be such a short text. So, for instance, um, preaching a, a sermon on on this God is love. Can you preach a sermon on God is love? Yes. Yeah, you can. You absolutely can. You can preach an entire sermon on God is love. So you can tell people. Or, or another example is First Thessalonians five. So go. If you go to first, the, you know the commands at the end of First Thessalonians five. 
when he says, um, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. You can preach a whole sermon on that. Can you preach? Here's a question. Can you preach a whole sermon on rejoice always? Absolutely you can. Absolutely you can. But how long does it take you to explain what rejoice means and what always means? Not very long. <laughs> so, so, so you're going to need more content than just rejoice always in the sermon. Or pray without ceasing. You can preach a whole sermon on pray without ceasing, but it's going to require other texts and much more nuance. It's going to be very applicationally oriented to do it. Um, 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. You can preach a whole sermon on that verse. You can preach an entire sermon on do not love the world or the things in the world. Um, but... You're going to be relying on a lot of other texts to build on that, what you mean. So that, I'm sure as I'm describing this kind of preaching, um, who, who in church history especially championed this? Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones is an expert at this. And, and you guys read some of his sermons on spiritual warfare also. Um, and they're great, aren't they? Like, they're not unfaithful. They're very good sermons. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, also, this was his main preaching style, the Puritans. Right, they would preach text topical sermons. Um, and this is, this is the structure that those sermons would, 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 uh, would use. Uh, let me get our shapes together again here. So they start, they'll start with exegesis. They'll then move to doctrine. And then the majority of the sermon then is spent on the third part. So very, very short amount of time on the first part. Very short, and then a little bit more time spent on the second part. And then the third part is where the majority of the sermon rests. Uh, and that is going to be... Uh, uses or application. So for, for exegesis, they explain the text. For doctrine, this is, from, from the text, they move to the rest of the Bible to show related doctrines. Or we could say cross-references. Right, to build a fuller understanding. And then they spend the majority of their time in application. Okay. Is this, is this a, are these biblical sermons? Meaning, are they rooted in scripture? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and is it okay to preach like this? Absolutely it is. Um, but there are, there are dangers to it. So what are, what are some dangers, do you think, of this, of this method? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, the good news is when you get guys like Martin Lloyd-Jones or Spurgeon or the Puritans, I mean, they were so steeped in Scripture that 
it's still very grace-centered. You know, it, it, it feels that the trajectory of the sermon is very often the trajectory of Scripture itself. So if, you're, if you are as acquainted with Scripture as those, as those men were, um, then it's, it, it's not going to be an issue. The problem is most of us aren't. Like you, you have to be an expert on the entire Bible to do a sermon like this. Now, there are times for sermons like this. I've preached sermons like this. They're much harder. They're certainly much harder. Um, but, and again, the arrangement is ours, but it's, it doesn't mean we can't do it. It doesn't mean we can't do it. But what are some other dangers? That was what I was saying with the second point. It's very difficult for new preachers. It's very difficult. What else? Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. There is a danger that because you're so concerned when, when you're spending so much time, you know, doing doctrine and application. Now, one of the main dangers, though, is that you so nuance the text that the text itself loses its power. So like Isaiah or like uh, Hebrews 6, for instance, um, go there with me. Yeah, I mean, if you preach, let's say, um, say verse four, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gifts and are shared of the Holy Spirit. Uh, well, this is a long sentence, so this isn't a good one. Look at Hebrews 10. Okay, he, uh, let's say you do Hebrews ten thirty one. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, and and you even do it in the context, right? So in the context, it's, it's about not sinning deliberately, fearful expectations of judgment, things like that. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant? So. If, if the Old Covenant had consequences for leaving it, how much more so the New Covenant? That's what it's saying. And it ends with, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right? The problem is, the problem with uh, a sermon style like this is that it, it often does not allow us to feel the full force of texts like this. So if you, if you explain the text briefly, but then immediately go into, yes, but... Remember, we are all secure in Christ, right? Remember John 6, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And you spend all this time nuancing the text. 
what you end up doing is silencing the text and not allowing the text to speak fully. And the, the, the reason that warning passages exist is to prompt the elect towards perseverance. They're a means of us persevering in faith. So then, and then your application oftentimes is not based upon the text. It's based upon the doctrine and the nuances that you pull from the text, pull from, from other texts that talk about a similar doctrine. So that's a danger. Um, is missing. Uh huh. In that example, could that not just be a bad way of doing a text topical message? Like, seems like the doctrine, instead of going into all these different safety things, if we were talking about different warnings, mm -hmm. uh, because we actually want to draw out the voice of Hebrews 10, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think, so what I'm, what I'm not saying is that, I'm not saying that ev this is true of every single, in the same way that I was saying that these things aren't true of every single topical sermon, I'm not saying that these things are true of every text topical sermon, but it is a danger. But James is right. You can do it in a way that honors the intent of the text, most certainly. And that can be a very powerful sermon, as people see that all of Scripture speaks to what we're talking about here. James is actually absolutely right. Um, another danger is that uh, it's, it's very easy to spend a significant amount of time in a single very short text. So an example, look at, uh, we already talked about Hebrews 12, 14 several times. Strive for peace and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Thomas Brooks spent a significant amount of time in that verse. Guess how many sermons he preached? on that verse. 58. He preached 58 sermons on that verse. Um, Hooker spent one year in Acts 2.47. Uh, John Hasselback, yes, he spent 21 years just on one chapter of Isaiah. 21 years. And, and, and now, what's that? It's as, as uh, old as <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, now it is true that not, you know, every, it, it, it can show that not, you know, we can't come to the end of every text, right? No text can ever be exhausted. There's always more that we can say. There's always new ways we can meditate on it. Um, but, but it certainly is a danger to stick so long in a single text that um, people aren't hearing the broadly from scripture. We're talking about one specific theme. Any, any questions on that before we move on? When we preach, for example, like the verse you mentioned in uh, Hebrews 10, 31, mm -hmm. we are, let's say we're expositionally preaching it, like we're going through the text and we are there. How, what would it look like to be gospel-centered? Because you said you need to feel the weight of the verse and not just jump to the affirmation of the gospel or even the hope of the gospel. Would you think that, um, I don't know, like, is there a better way to leave the sermon, leaving the church with the full weight of the, the text? 
but at the same time giving them gospel? Uh, yeah. Um, so I, I would look at the, the trajectory of this chapter itself. Um, because it ends with it ends with verse 39. So look at Hebrews 10, 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and per, and preserve their souls. Right. So I think I think if you're preaching this text, you can spend a long time talking about some fearful things to fall into the hands of an angry God. You can talk about the doctrine of that. Like you can make people feel. I, I think these warning texts. Are they, the intent of them is to always make you feel like I, if anyone's going to lose their salvation, it's going to be me. Like, that's how you should feel reading these texts. And you can make people feel that. And uh, you can even apply it that way. But I do think that if you're going to faithfully um, preach the intent of the text, you need to at some point in the sermon, probably, probably if I was teaching, preaching this text, it'd probably be the last one-third of the sermon. The last one-third of the sermon, bring in verse 39 um, and do doctrine and application again. But if we're preaching like within a pericope, right? Like I think that's how we preached through Philippians. So mm -hmm. verse 39 wouldn't come up until. So would we, like I think Michael says sometimes uh, the, 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 the trajectory of the gospel for example, like if, for example, here we're we're meant to feel the weight of our sin, so mm -hmm. it in a way it's gospel-centered by stirring us towards that a sense of total depravity. Would you think that in of it itself would suffice, or would we need to give hope and just you know preach the whole gospel? Yeah, I did, so I would say verse 39 is in, in part of the same pericope. I would say it is part of the same pericope. It's not part of the same paragraph, but I do think it's part of the same pericope. Um, and I do think in order to faithfully preach verse 31, you would need to give the hope of verse 39. Uh, I, think, I think that you would, you would, uh, you would leave people um, in, in unneeded despair if you didn't give them the hope of the gospel. And you wouldn't be doing what the text, you, you wouldn't be preaching the intent of the text. The intent of the text is that you would feel the weight of your sin, but that then you would be comforted with the reality that God will, will preserve us. And I, th I think that's what in line with the intent of the text. But it's a good question. Yeah, very good question. Okay, next. So th those are two kinds of sermons. And they're both biblical, right? You could preach either one of those, and it would be biblical, and it would be it can be a good sermon. They're just dangers. The third, the third kind of sermon is expository sermon. Expository sermons. So I want to be clear what expository sermons are and what they aren't. I don't want to define expository preaching yet. I want to describe it. Um, and I, I think there are, there are misunderstandings about what expository sermons are. So what, this is what expository sermons do, is they, they expound the text so that the text can say what it says. 
they expound and explain the text so as to let the text say what it says. So the goal is the re-speaking of God's word, explaining both the meaning and the content, the intent of a single text of scripture. Um, but, but what we don't want to do is, is reduce the meaning of expository preaching to content alone. Okay, and that's where this goes off. We're not just giving facts about the text. Um, we're, we're giving, part, part of it is also the claims of the text in our lives. So when people, when people attack expository preaching, and I think rightly so, if we want to talk about the dangers of expository preaching, it's that it's just a running commentary. It can just be a running commentary on the text. And when we do that, when we don't make it practical, when we never apply the text or bring the text to bear on people's lives, we're not preaching. We're not preaching. Part of preaching is bringing the text to bear on people's lives. It's, we, we, intend the, the, we, we intend for the gospel to produce fruit in people's lives. So we preach both the intent of the text. God's word wants to be a transformative document. Right? God has given us his word to... Um, to enter into a relationship with us. So it's, it's how the word of God is operational in our lives. We, we want to be able to do that. So it's, it's not a running commentary. It's not a running commentary. It's not even three points, three main points. It's not even three main points with subpoints. That is not what makes a sermon expository. Okay, here, here's a couple of definitions. This is Brian Chappell from your textbook. He says this, his definition of expository sermons is that the meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. The meaning of the passage is the message of the sermon. Uh, Jeff Perswell, again, says it like this. An expository sermon seeks to communicate the content of a, of a biblical text, of a biblical text, a single biblical text, so as to allow that text to have its intended effect in the life of God's people. To do so, the text derives its message, content, and structure from the biblical text. And I think this is where the definition is helpful. It's the message of the sermon, the content of the sermon, and the structure of the sermon all come from the text. So we don't create a an artificial structure. We don't, we don't impose our own content Everything that, that is said in the sermon comes from the text itself. So we, say what the, so we say what the text says, and we say it in the way the text says it. So it, it has to do with content, yes, but it also has to do with how that content is shaped. So why, why is this important? Why is this, why is this, I think, more faithful, more biblical? It's because it's theological. It, it honors the fact that God speaks again in the preaching moment through the text. It, it honors that fact, and, and it anticipates that the reoralization of God's word should have an effect in people's lives that's consistent with the fact that was intended when it was originally given. So it gives the truth of God's word but it gives the truth of God's word in the way that God intends for it to come. 
So and that's one, but two, it also it models for people how to access truth from God's word. It models for people who listen how to access truth from God's word and how to read their Bibles because people will mimic how we how we preach in their own personal Bible reading. People will watch how we explain a text and they'll say, okay, that's what it looks like to read your Bible. I'm going to go home and do that. And we want to mimic a way of Bible reading that people, we want to do it, we want to model a, a, a way of Bible reading that people can mimic at home. We believe saying, I can read my Bible. When people, we want people wedding, we want to whet people's appetites for God's word and give them confidence that they can read it themselves. So uh, again, Jeff Perswell says this about expository preaching. It's a sermon which communicates the content of the biblical text so as to allow that text to have its intended effect in the lives of God's people. It's a sermon which communicates the content of the biblical text so as to allow that text to have the intended effect in the life of God's people. Now, can the other two models of sermons do that? Yes, they can but it's more obscure. It's not as direct. This is the most direct way of doing it, I think. So we say what the text says, and we say it in the way the text says it. So it's not, it's not a running commentary, right? We don't seek to be exhausted. We don't necessarily seek to be exhaustive either. We don't say in an expositional sermon everything that a text could possibly say. We don't say every, we're not trying to say everything that's in the text. We're trying to say what's needed from the text for that audience. We want the text to serve the pastoral and homiletical uh, needs of the church. We, and we want the logic of the text to produce that. Um, it, it's also not, it's not a structure. It's not main points and sub and sub points. And it, it's, it's also not even necessarily preaching through a single book of the Bible. Expositional preaching is not necessarily preaching through a single book of the Bible. It often is that, and I think it's good to do that. And I think we should do that, but sermons can be expository without being part of a series. Right. So, so we've had guest speakers come in and preach before and they, they pick a text and they work through that text. And that's expository preaching, even though it's not part of the main series that we're doing. Um, so what, one thing you could do, for instance, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? Do all to the glory of God. So you can, you can have a sermon series that's themed around this. Or like our, our sermon series on the Holy Spirit, for instance, that we were doing at our church. When, when me and Michael sat down to plan out that series, we asked what texts should be a part of the series, right? We, we asked what text should we preach for this series? And then we went and studied those individual texts. So that's an expositional series, even though you're not working through a single book, because you're going to be explaining different texts. 
Or if you want to do, you know, a, a theme from 1 Corinthians 10, 31, and you want to say, so what are, what are different topics we want to address? And then what texts address those topics? And then you work through those individual texts. Then you can, they're still expository, even though it's not part of a, working through a book. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so the benefits of this, the benefits of this is that we're, it's the model which most closely keeps us bound to scripture. What God says, how God says it, our emphasis, our tone, the intentions of the text. With topical sermons, you know, we know what we're going to say even before we get to the text, don't we? With topical sermons, you're rarely surprised by what the text actually says. Well, so what here, I'll give you one example. This is what this is what expositional preaching does. I was I was preparing a sermon once on the end of Philippians 3, verse, starting in verse 17. Brothers, join me, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is in their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject every, all, all things to himself. So I was, I was preparing a sermon on this text at one point, and it was going to be about um, what Paul says in verse 17, join in imitating me. Uh, and, and I was very young when I was preparing this. It was very different emphasis. I ask very different questions now than I did back then when I get to a text. But the, the point of the sermon was going to be, um, are you like Paul? Can you say like Paul, join in imitating me? Or are there problems in your life that you can't say that? So it was going to be very moralistic, very much a call to, um, to uh, like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and, and live the kind of lifestyle that others can look at so that we can say, like, Paul, join in imitating me. But what I realized as I was preparing the sermon is that chapter 4, verse 1 goes with this text because it starts with a therefore, right? Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. So the, the text is about, in the midst of, in a context with false teachers, how we stand firm in Christ. How we don't um, become enemies of the cross like the false teachers. So then all of a sudden, well, now, now this text is exploding with new meaning. Uh, looking towards faithful leaders who have come before us. Right, looking to their positive example and look at, looking to the negative example of people who have strayed from the gospel and are enemies of the gospel. How, how do you stand firm in the Lord? One, you look, to the, you look to the positive examples of those who have gone before us. Two, you look to the negative examples of people who have fallen away because you don't want to become like them. And three, you look for the coming and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing those three things, you stand firm in the gospel and you don't, you don't forsake the gospel. That was what the sermon ended up being. And when I found out that that's what this text was actually saying at first, I was really disappointed. I was like, that really, I feel like that really undermines what I wanted to say. But the point is, I was surprised. Like, 
studying for expositional preaching surprises us because the text often means things different than what we thought it meant. Um, so we, we learn from the text. We don't come with expectations of what the text should say. We, we learn from the text what it actually says. Um, and it also, it forces us to preach the whole counsel of God too. It helps us to not stray away or look away from harder texts, harder topics to preach. Um, and, and it allows us to keep directing people back to their Bibles, right? To keep saying, look at this verse, look at this verse, look at this verse. And we've been in one on one page of our Bibles the entire time. Again, the other, the other methods of preaching can do this, but they don't as easily do it as, as expositional preaching. Uh, three, expositional preaching is beneficial because it, it demands integrity, right? It demands integrity. It, it means we're working through a text systematically. We're forced to say what that text says, and people are sitting there with their Bibles in their hands looking at them, right? And if you don't say what the text says, people are like, yeah, but look, I'm not sure that's what it means. Or where are you? What, why are you talking about what you're talking about? Right? But expositional preaching forces us to only say what the text says and to say all of what the text says. So then we keep, we then, we keep pointing people back to the true power of transformation, which is the word of God. Um, Donald Coggin says this about which I think applies well to expository preaching. The Christian preacher has a boundary set for him. When he enters the pulpit, he is not entirely free man. There's a very real sense in which it may be said of him that the Almighty has set him his bounds that he shall not pass. He is not at liberty to invent or choose his message. It has been committed to him. And it's for him to declare, expound, and commend to its hearers. It is a great thing to come under the magnificent tyranny of the gospel. I love that. It's a great thing to come under the magnificent tyranny of the gospel. So, so we should always be asking ourselves when we're preparing sermons, where are the ideas that I have for the sermon coming from? Are they coming from me or are they coming from this text? And then, and then lastly, I, I think... By, by implication of all of this, expository preaching forces us to be recipients of grace before we become a means of grace. It forces us to become recipients of grace before we become a means of grace. Now, other again, other types of sermon styles can do this, but not as easily, not as readily. Expository sermons uniquely provide opportunity for us to be transformed by the text, to not be importing things we already know from Scripture, things we already assume from Scripture, but they, they allow us to just read a text, study it, understand its meaning, so that we become transformed by it, so that then we can preach it uh, to its full effect. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Uh, yeah, Amy. So when we say
say, for example, if it's more explanatory and you just jump to the like the end of it so that you kind of give a holistic author's intent, and would that be defining a structure and then would that be less of an expositional preaching? For example, there are some verses, the main idea is in the first line and then it goes in explaining and then the last line. So Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, our next lesson is going to be on how to choose a text. And that, that kind of is what you're, what you're asking here, I think. But in, in short, I think, I think there are times that expository preaching forces us to choose bigger texts. So that if I, if I was preaching that text in Hebrews 10, I, I would probably preach two whole paragraphs so that the full intended effect of that text was felt. It's a good question. Now, there, there are times in sermon series, though, that I think that if you're doing expository preaching, so Michael did this, we were talking about uh, when he was going through Philippians 1, uh, he really wanted to preach a sermon. Um, he, he really wanted to preach um, the first section in Philippians 1 in a way that emphasized Philippians 1.6. Like, you really want to apply Philippians 1.6. I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And he's done this maybe three or four times in Philippians. And uh, what, what I've advised him is preach, preach an expositional sermon on the entire paragraph, right? And then the next week, preach one sermon that's a text topical sermon. So pre preach the next week on just Philippians 1, 6. And I, I, think, I think that those have been very powerful sermons when he's done that. He, he provides a broad context that preaches the entire text. And then the following week, he just really narrows the focus to a single text or a single idea that, that the church needs to hear. And he's, he's pastorally sensitive and he's aware that there's a need in the church to learn, about, learn more about a certain theological topic and bring that to bear on the church. Um, and I think he's done that very well. So, so I think these can be used together. Um, and, and I think, I think you should use all three sermon types, but I think the, the one that's most consistent with our convictions and the one we should go back to over and over again is the expository model. But one of my favorites, I mean, I love, I love text topical sermons. And the more mature I get in my faith, the more I enjoy preaching text topical sermons too. Yeah.
Yeah, so um, my, uh, I, th I think the intent behind people saying things like that is that expository preaching keeps us honest and it keeps us full of integrity was, was one of the points I was making, meaning that if, here's an example, the, the doctrine of hell. Like nobody, nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, you know what I really want to do? I really want to preach on hell today. I mean, I, I guess some, some people might, but I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. I, I personally wouldn't want to do that. That's, a, that's an un, um, that's not a fun topic to preach on. It's a very heavy topic. Um, it's it, yeah. And there are other, there are other topics that are similar. Um, if you're not preaching systematically through a book, it can become easy to avoid certain topics that you would be forced to preach otherwise, right? And so in that sense, it forces us to preach the whole counsel of God, right? It forces us to not shy away from any topic. So if that's what they mean by it, I agree. I agree that it causes to preach the whole counsel of God. However, where, where, when people say things like that, where it goes wrong, is is when they is when people feel like there's only one right way to preach every text and this is one way that expositional preaching can go wrong oftentimes is assuming that there's only one right way to preach every text and the main point of the text has to be the main point of the sermon so that it's actually possible to preach through the entire bible and say i did it right i'm done I guess, I guess now I just have to go back to old sermons because I actually, I actually did all the work that needs to be done. When I, I think that that's a little bit short-sighted on what sermons can do. It, it reduces sermons to functionally running commentaries versus, I, I, think, I think the point of the sermon is to allow the text to serve the church in the pastoral. Uh, it allows the, the sermon allows you to serve the church, the church's pastoral needs. So I could preach one text um, in a church and then five years later preach the same text and the sermon could sound very different. Now my ex explanation points might be the same, even my illustration points might be the same, but what I emphasize and especially what I apply would be very different. Um, so that if, if what they mean, here's what I hope they mean by that. Here's what I hope they don't mean by that. But unfortunately, I feel like guys who speak that way tend to mean the second. Um, and I agree with you that text topical sermons uniquely are able to, to, do, to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm often a fan of text topical sermons. And I, I like to preach text topical sermons also. But text, text topical sermons are often the fruit of having preached many expository sermons. Like once, after you preach 100 expository sermons, you're much more able to do text topical sermons in ways that are helpful to people, I think. Good. Any other questions? I have a question, George. Mm-hmm.
just wondering, should we have a category in our minds for speech preaching, like open air preaching? Because you know, like many preachers of old, you know, they were really active in open air um, evangelism and preaching. So should we have that category in our minds also, and not just focused on like ministry within four walls around us? Yeah. I, I think the, the focus of this class is especially preaching in the local church, not preaching in like an, an open air preaching kind of way. Um, though, though I do think that we have examples of that in scripture. Uh, it does seem like the primary examples we have of preaching in scripture, like Paul going to the synagogues, Jesus going to the synagogues, or preaching that happens in, in a church. So I think that's the main emphasis of of where preaching is done. Um, if you're doing that that kind of preaching, pro probably more of like a topical sermon is is uh, more ideal, or or text topical. If what you, if what you're trying to do is simply evangelize, um, or probably even what you're trying to do is take a text that says something like, you know, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand," and then just give a bunch of application on what that means. Uh, or even with prophetic impulses and, and um, yeah, with, with prophetic impulses and applying that to people who walk by, things like that. Uh, but that, that's not necessarily the full emphasis of this class, but it's a good, it's a good helpful reminder.